0: to episode 110 of The Professor and the Hack. I am the hack, Hugh Rimmington, And with me, as always, the Professor Peter Van Onselen. G'day, Pete.
1: G'day, Hugh. Yep. And welcome to the last sitting week of 2021.
0: Yes. And how many days are now planned into the new year? Like, I mean, it's what is it? Nine days before August of next year on the calendar that came out?
1: I thought 10, but we were really talking about peanuts in, in any difference between 9 and 10, aren't we? And, and the reason that people assume that is the calendar has been put out and it's got very few days anyway, quite frankly, between the beginning of next year and August. But the, the calculation of it being at such a low number as that comes from the, the assumption around the timing of the election. And, of course, it's an election that will be held during that time and, and it means that it knocks out sitting days that are in the schedule because, of course, you can't have sittings during a campaign. uh, And the assumption is immediately after an election result, it knocks out any sitting days that would be straight after because the government of the day can suspend that, go straight to the winter recess and not come back until August. And, of course, it has the budget being brought forward formally in the calendar to March. Now that doesn't mean that the PM can't call the election after Australia Day and go to a March poll with the budget, which is scheduled for late March, coming after that. But it's less likely, I think, as a result of them putting this out, that they would do that. Uh, And we all sort of assumed that he would want to go full term to get another budget in. He's now formalized that and brought it forward so it doesn't look messy. And he has to informally do it like he did three years ago. But uh, he still has the capacity to call the election early. Bottom line, I think we've said this before, Hugh, Scott Morrison will call the election when he believes he can win it. So if he doesn't call it immediately after Australia Day for a March election, that tells me that he thinks that he still has a little bit more work to do because their internals are suggesting that, that a budget would help them rather than hinder them.
0: Mm. And for those people, and there are quite a few who think the primary job of politicians is to pass legislation, that is what parliament exists for, they look at it and say, why are we paying these guys this money? They turn up to work a handful of days a year. We all know politicians, in fact, work very hard, usually in pursuit of their own uh, re-election prospects. <laughs> yeah, there's not much to show there. Uh, Look, since we last spoke, this Omicron variant has loomed up large. And the latest suggestions are that it may be, as the early indications suspected it may, that seems to be firming that it may be harder to knock out or protect against with the vaccines that currently exist. I don't want to get too much in the health. We're not a health podcast and we're not health experts. This is a politics podcast. Mm. How does the prime minister deal with this, given the mistakes made last year? Given that he's now given a series of speeches saying the government's got to get out of people's lives, and yet we have a new variant coming on, he's promising everyone, families will be reunited for Christmas, no new lockdowns. What's the politics of a new and scary variant?
1: Yeah, look, politically, he's a bit of a catch-22, and he has to hope that ultimately, when the science does more fulsomely come in, that it's, you know, might be more contagious But it is not as resistant to vaccines as as it might be, and more importantly than anything, I think the hope has to be that the evidence eventually tells us, with some certainty, that it is more mild than the Delta variant, especially obviously if it's vaccine resistant, uh, and especially if it's more contagious. So he's he's beholden to events to some extent here. I mean, we know throughout the campaign, uh, sorry, throughout the pandemic, he has been beholden to state premiers when it comes to lockdowns to a large extent, certainly to border closures state to state. But now he's in this bind where he said, okay, we are opening up. And he preempted national cabinet with a press conference saying exactly that. We won't be closing down when he doesn't actually have the authority to suggest that. But if this virus ends up being more contagious, vaccine resistant, and heaven forbid, more deadly, as opposed to less deadly, which is where the science seems to be taking it, he has got a huge political problem, quite apart from the actual health public policy problem that the nation faces, because he's already got us on this one-way path to opening up. Uh, it's part of his whole raison d'etre for re-election. If it is more contagious and he's got us on that path, it becomes you know, an egg that you can't unscramble because the new variant will be throughout the country, or at least large parts of the country, maybe not WA. So he's in a real political pickle when it comes to this, because the alternative to that, Hugh, is that if it does prove to be a problem and states then start locking down, taking matters into their own hands, even if the PM goes along with it, well, then he's completely violating his pledge and he will be accused at the same time as that of being late to the party, won't he? Because the new variant will have already spread. So as far as politics goes, there is really just a roll of the dice here for Scott Morrison. He has to hope that there is good news attached to this new variant, not bad news. And that'll just be relying on the science because it's already, I would almost argue, out of his hands politically with where we're at. What do you think?
0: Well, I think it's important that the credibility of a political response depends on how closely it aligns to the scientific evidence. And by getting out early and saying no more lockdowns, families will be together for Christmas on the basis of the World Health Organization and its latest bulletin on it says, we won't know for weeks really what we're dealing with here, it does create the risk that he may, for political reasons, seek to take positions and take Australia into positions which may not align with the available science because of promises that he has made. He doesn't want to break political promises this close to an election. Mm. That's the danger, I think. And so we, we wind up with a kind of attention to a greater degree than we've already seen between science and the politics.
1: And the other thing, Hugh, I think think on this one, compared to the original variant, the Delta variant, and now the one that we're facing here, previously Australia has always lagged a little bit behind the rest of the world. And that's, I think, one of the reasons why we've been able to both make better decisions and be safer, but also one of the reasons why when we've been slower and made bad decisions like the botched vaccine rollout, it hasn't had the same consequences because we've been able to, if you like, react see what happens around the rest of the world and then be in a better place for it no real surprises there we're an island nation but this time the nature of this variant it strikes me that if there is a difference between it hitting australia versus hitting the rest of the world and i'm not including the southern african nations it looks like the time frame is not the same so in other words we're in a real-time scenario where how europe and the united states and asia are reacting to this variant they are all in a similar moment in time to we are so we're going to find out the good news or the bad news in real time and not have that reactive capacity to you know if you like to, to be the lucky country
0: well, we will wait and see the terrible journalistic standby, but uh, definitely the science and the more information that comes in on this Omicron is, is going to be fascinating. The other thing which has uh, dominated talk around Parliament has been this uh, Kate Jenkins report, the one that was triggered by Brittany Higgins' experiences in Parliament earlier this year. <coughs> Jenkins herself says she was shocked by what she found. The longest serving female MP in the federal parliament ever, Tanya Pliversek says she finds it disturbing. What's the talk? they around Parliament House about this since the Kate Jenkins report dropped? It's not
1: shock at the case studies where you see the quotes from people and it's shock at the, at the sheer numbers, you know, what is it, roughly one in four people who participated, which, you know, is, is largely current staffers, has experienced some form of sexual harassment, according to the data. It's shock without it being surprise, if I could put it that way. I yeah. mean, there's, there's been that real sense around the building. I mean, I can only talk about my lived experience and i think there is a difference when you're in the parliamentary press gallery wing versus if you're you know a staffer or an mp in all these scattered offices throughout the building because i I imagine it was similar uh, when you were in the press gallery wing the gallery sort of moves on you know you file you move on or you're working to a file deadline later at night and there's less of that now than there probably was in decades gone by just for changes in the media so you don't really see it in the press gallery wing Whereas, as I understand it, and I've occasionally dropped in to one of these, you know, there seems to be sort of drinking sessions in parliamentary ministerial backbench offices that go later into the night because the journalists might have been able to wrap up, but Parliament continues later into the night, particularly the Senate, for example, depending on what they're doing, less so these days with changes in the House. But th- that is the real focus of of this report. And the two interesting things, it's it's the sheer volume of female staffers who have faced sexual harassment, including in large part from MPs, and that's particularly relevant because it adds the power imbalance to the mix and the unaccountability to the mix because of just the nature of being an elected representative, and that's where some of the recommendations in the report talk to that. But the other part, which is underreported but I just find interesting, is that the bullying component, the suggestion is that I think it was 63 or 61% of bullying allegations are actually by women, not by men. So the men are doing the sexual harassing and the women disproportionately are apparently doing the bullying. Now I haven't gone through the full 450 pages, but it's a bit of a pox on both houses in that sense, which brings us back to the recommendations, doesn't it? It's all about what happens next. And politically there's the cause for every recommendation to be enacted. Some of them require legislation, not just the actions of government because it's bipartisan in nature and legislative in nature. From what I've read of them, I I agree with most of them. I'm not sure that they're all enforceable. I mean, the idea, for example, that you have no alcohol in the building is an interesting one because, you know, that's a sort of a personal responsibility thing to some extent. Yes, in the workplace, at one level, you sort of think, do you need to have alcohol in the building? But then it's like a microcosm of a society, the parliament, as you know Hugh. So, you know, these MPs are often there all hours with functions in the building. So I don't know how they actually police that. And then there's the irony, and I'm not saying I'm against it, by the way, but I'm just sceptical about this irony. You know, <laughs> we trust MPs to legislate for the country, but clearly, based on the recommendation out of this report—a well-considered report—we can't trust them enough to consume alcohol in the building after hours. It, it really presents the dire nature of the culture, doesn't it? And the difficulties in fixing it and maintaining public trust in the political class—if you can't even trust them to do some basic things that you like to think civil society should allow.
0: It's interesting that uh, 26% of those who say they're harassed say they were harassed by elected parliamentarians, senators or MPs. Mm. That's a terrible blight on people who've been elected to high office. It did strike me when I first started being around the federal parliament in the 1990s, it was before the days of smartphones, and there was a huge drinking culture in the bars in Kingston and Manicas, you know, the, the close suburbs around parliament. In fact, I think that some of those bars were dependent for their own business model on the drinking that came out of all the staffers that would would stagger down. It was quiet when parliament wasn't sitting. And, you know, the old saying that uh, politics is show business for ugly people carries a grain of truth in the sense that people who are drawn to politics admire politicians. It's their thing. Sure. Yeah. So, you know, there is a kind of a rock star quality for a young person going into politics to have seen someone that they admire, that they feel politically aligned to, who they've seen on the TV, making the case, arguing, heroically carrying the flag for whichever you know, strand of politics that, that they're engaged with. And suddenly they're in a bar drinking with them, and it's heady stuff. And I was quite shocked at the amount of drunkenness before smartphones, I think that killed it off, between members of parliament, who would generally be older men, holding court, to young staffers, male and female, but uh, certainly didn't behind the attention of, um, of attractive young women. And, you know, and there were rumours about some politicians being notorious pants men, as it was said at the time, mm. you know, because that's part of the environment that it was in there. What I say here is not remotely to excuse any of it, but that was the culture. How much of that culture still remains but was behind closed doors is what Kate Jenkins, I think, is pointing to but it's not how other workplaces go.
1: No, it's not. And I think you've absolutely hit the nail on the head on what has changed, and not for the better. In fact, probably for the worse in some respects, although it's, it's a lesser of two evils, you would argue. Back in the day, as it were, decades gone by, yes, MPs and their staff would go out in public and drink in Canberra. As a young staffer for a very short period of time, back in 2001, I saw that exactly what you're describing. I remember walking into a bar, I was in my early 20s, completely green and seeing MPs who I had seen in the public domain, I'd sort of studied as a a student, drinking, dancing, talking. It was almost surreal. The smartphones, as well as I think a change in the media culture back then, I think there was this sort of understanding that they did what they did. There was rumours abound, for better or worse, it wasn't reported. Okay. And that was that. And so that was the way it happened. So it was flagrantly done more publicly because it didn't get reported. Bring in smartphones, bring in a changed attitude, for better or worse, within journalism. And that sort of behavior was starting to get filmed, reported, made fact based with the smartphones. So what it, I think that did is it brought that same drinking culture into the workplace, office by office, of an evening, because That became, for the politician, not clearly according to this report for the staffers, but for the politician that became a safe space, okay, a safe space for the good politicians just to drink, but also a safe space for the predatory ones who are being highlighted in this report, and a less safe space by definition as a workplace for young staffers, women, men as well, to a lesser extent depending on the category. And that, I think, has been an interesting phenomenon which, you know... It is a potential lesser of evils the old way it was versus the new ultimately the aim is to try to completely change the culture isn't it rather than have the culture stay the same but go underground as it were by going into the building office by office
0: yes and hopefully you know this is we're talking about parliament but these are issues which are just so current across so many workplaces and uh, and and that's a cultural change that can't come fast enough in terms of just respect at work i think the phrase is let's take a quick break back in just a second Welcome back. This is episode 110 of The Professor and the Hack. Now, Scott Morrison gave his famous Coward's Palace speech about people hiding behind anonymity on social media. A lot of people at the time thought that was a classic Scott Morrison device to, you know, just to throw something out there to distract from whatever else was going on and that there was going to be no follow-through. There is a legislative follow-through coming through now. He's dead set on changing this and on Putting the big platforms on notice that they may have to reveal the identities of people who have previously enjoyed anonymity on their platforms, or otherwise the platforms themselves are sued for defamation. What do you make of this? The politics of it? The likelihood of it working?
1: Yeah, look, it's a really interesting one, because I think it can be all things, both the cynics and the advocates for it, I, I think, have points. I have little doubt that it's thrown out there as a distraction by Scott Morrison. I also have little doubt that it's not as well thought through as it will need to be because it is so complicated how you do this to draw greater accountability to these big tech organisations. For example, even just straight up the difference between national boundaries with people being able to do it from overseas versus here where we can have legislative control. It needs to be well thought out and well thought through and there needs to be a really good discussion about it. That sits in contrast to the way I think it was delivered. You know, the Prime Minister just sort of announces it from on high, gives his strong rhetoric, knows that a lot of people are sick and tired of the kind of bullying and crassness that goes on online, particularly on social media. So he sort of plays into that sentiment but then doesn't necessarily have the substance to back it up that you might like. Or in my case, I would like, you know, I like the idea of them having more accountability. There's always a place for anonymity but not anonymity that allows some sort of vile, defamatory actions. But then you also have to ask, who are you protecting? Because as much as I, I'm a defender of defamation laws, at the end of the day, you have to have a certain level of capacity, knowledge and power and money, even for that matter, to take advantage of them. So if you want to protect the powerless who can face bullying online, which tends to be children, for example, then you know changing defamation laws via accountability for big tech doesn't of itself solve that problem. I just think it's, it's a no-brainer that you should have to provide your details to be able to engage on a platform. Then the debate becomes, how can those details be accessed? Because, for example, if you're a public servant, you should have the right to have an anonymous account and express views which your workplace might not otherwise allow because you're a free voting citizen. As long as those views don't become over the line, whatever that is, and that's where the legislation comes
0: into it but wasn't there the case the la legal case where someone with the twitter account la legal i, I know her name but I, I won't mention it was punished because she was a public servant using an anonymous account you know pursued and punished for that and the courts upheld that
1: yeah and, and, and i don't like that either i mean and that, that's obviously just a, you know the the power of the workplace and i imagine it would be the same in, in the private sector if either of us set up an anonymous account and started offering random news that were perhaps legal, but extreme, and our employer found out about it, we would become, you know, sort of a liability to them and no doubt be in in breach of their their social media policies. I I kind of, I accept that to a point, but I guess it's just, I, I find it unfortunate because I'm an advocate for free speech, as long as there are responsibilities that go with that. So it's all about where the lines sit, isn't it? And it's not helped by a prime minister or any politician for that matter, who then just uses it as a political tool to shout down cowardice and, and all the rest of it. It's complicated. Fixing something like this is complicated.
0: Well, it's funny because Peter Dutton, as we know, recently won a, a defamation payout of $35,000 against someone who tweeted a six-word tweet against him. The courts found that he had indeed been defamed and the payment was made. He has spoken, Mrs Dutton has spoken, of there needing to be some sort of financial support for politicians to sue for defamation on the basis that it goes with the workplace. So it should be a workplace entitlement. I notice it's being reported that another option that's being contemplated is establishing a new legal service, a bit like a community legal service, to which people can go and be taxpayer-funded to take action against people who they feel have defamed them. So this is the argument that it's not just the top end of town gets More access to defame, you know, people who have said nasty things about them, but it it, it gives balance for people who don't have great money to get taxpayer funding to take test cases, at least in the early stages, to identify people who have trolled them and then sue them. It seems very strange for a coalition government to be looking at establishing a new taxpayer-funded body of this kind. But (laughs) um, yeah,
1: I mean, look, this is you need work in this space, but of itself, I don't have a problem with a person having the right to take action if they feel like they've been defamed, but it's incredibly expensive to do it. I mean, to do it yourself, you have to have significant means because you might get a, a payout at the end of it, but it's a long process, mentally harrowing. You're the one who sees yourself, at least, as, as the sort of victim of, of having been defamed, and then at the end of it, you might not even get your cost back, much less win the matter, right? However, what I would like to see, particularly when we start to talk low-level defamation, you know, somebody goes on television, and they hammer you, and you are defamed. You know, whether it's a media organisation making a mistake of identity, for example, with a normal citizen, or whether it's a politician getting defamed by a political commentator, for example, that's high-level defamation in a large audience space. The low-level defamation online, I would like to see some sort of equivalent, as a law reform, of small claims tribunal, where it can be cheaply and quickly established that someone has defamed you. I mean, Peter Dutton being called a rape apologist I think quite rightly, he was the winner, if you like, of that defamation matter. But I think it's the kind of low level of defamation in terms of who did it, a platform that it was done on, that the better course for Dutton and for the person who did it, by the way, would be some sort of small claims tribunal where Dutton can make an instant complaint and it basically gets judged with almost no costs on either party with a low level fine and an apology required. And so then, bang! Apology goes online. Fine, paid. I don't know what we're talking—five hundred bucks, a thousand, fifteen hundred. Pick your number, and it gets quickly determined by someone who's quasi-judicial. And then you can just have these things can just happen at rapid-fire pace. And hopefully, it would prevent people just speaking freely and defaming. People would become more self-controlling in terms of what they do, but without it having to be either massively black or white, you know, you either are all in on hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of a defamation matter over six words in a tweet, or you're all out and people can just go vile spewing their defamatory comments because it's not worth it to take action. Some sort of small claims, halfway house, I think would be ideal.
0: I think it's an excellent idea. I think it'd be flat out busy. It yeah, probably would. Because um, once it existed, everybody who's ever had someone said something nasty to them, they can put it through.
1: But there'd have to be some cost,
0: wouldn't there? You know, like it costs you 500
1: bucks to make your complaint, for example, so that you you, you cover the processing and you just have one person who just makes, you know, it's almost like a version of the press council, although that's a bit more arduous than that, yeah. where, you know, decisions are made on the spot pretty quickly and you either, if you if you make an attempt, To make a claim that you've been defamed, you've got to pay the five hundred bucks. It gets processed. It comes back and it says, "Congratulations, you're correct." You don't get your five hundred back, but here's your thousand dollar reward. The other person has to pay for it, and you can make a decision whether the principle matters enough to get the apology versus the payout. Because of course, depending on who's doing the defaming, maybe they don't have the capacity to pay. So all you get is your apology, but that might be worth the five hundred bucks.
0: Yeah, no, it's it's you should be in politics, PVO. Makes sense to me. (laughs) But from five hundred bucks over nasty words on social media, to the next world war. Let's step it up just a little. (laughs) slight change. China has made a big show of new military exercises off the south of Taiwan. Their statement through their often bellicose-sounding state-run media talks of Taiwan being an easy win if they wanted to get it, and saying that anyone who went into Taiwan's support if it came to war would be completely destroyed. We've had uh, the big speech from Peter Dutton at the National Press Club, putting more substance, I suppose, to his argument about it being inconceivable that Australia wouldn't go into fight alongside the United States if China was to have a crack at Taiwan. couple of issues there. Would the US go in? Could we win it? But also, let's be honest, if there was a war which involved the United States and China over the future of Taiwan, our military forces, God bless them, would be utterly irrelevant to the fight, We have two ageing operational Collins-class submarines available at any one time. We've got six of the boats, but the, the rule is only two are required to be operational at any one time. You know, we'd be in the fight, but making no difference to the outcome. Mm. How do you read this?
1: Oh, look, it's hard, isn't it? I mean, this is in some ways um, more your area of expertise than mine. But I just, I worry because the minute that it actually becomes a hot war, which involves the United States and China, the repercussions of that are enormous. And I'm not talking nuclear. I mean, I'm, I'm assuming that they can do it without that sort of mutually assured destruction.
0: Well, not, not everyone's assuming that. No, but... There's certainly been people assuming, in fact, that it would go to nuclear, at least at battle. You know, they talk about these battlefield or tactical nuclear weapons.
1: Well, it's a, it's a risk, isn't it?
0: Well, one of the suggestions being that the United States might have no option because... There are so many missiles and airfields in that area facing onto Taiwan that the only way really to neutralize them is to take them out and a go. You know, the stakes and the potential for escalation out of control very rapidly are staggering.
1: So that's sort of a fascinating thing, isn't it? Like you just sort of think, how does this actually happen? I mean, we're, we're literally talking about China, presumably, starting to flag that it might flag this, but actually flagging we're coming. That's it. And then some strategic strikes into Taiwan and the hope that they, and it's a hope, isn't it? It's a Hail Mary, that they can then essentially launch their invasion off the back of this without resistance. Because if there is resistance, then all cards are on the table. Any outcome is possible. The risk of escalation, you know the, the economic impact, quite apart from the military impact in terms of the fallout in the aftermath, even if they do manage to quash the hot war component of it, it's almost unthinkable. The only alternative to that, if China does decide that this is not just rhetoric, but they are going to take action, the only alternative to that horror scenario is actually that there's just pure capitulation and Taiwan just accepts China's the bigger power and we're going to let them come in.
0: Yeah, it's, I mean, it's almost certain. It's almost certain that Taiwan would resist. You would think so. You would think so. I mean, they've said they would. They're gearing up their military for it. That they're they're trained for it. You know, it would be a you know, a fundamental breach of of every promise that President uh, Tsai Ing-wen has made, that she's been elected strongly on that. The group or the subset of Taiwanese population that supports long-term reintegration has shrunk over time. And
1: that's the fascinating one, isn't it?
0: Because I've looked at, seen what's happened in Hong Kong and all the rest of it. Yeah. So there is not a strong, you know, this is one thing about, you know, mainland China, communist China, cannot play a card saying there's an, illegitimate government in Taiwan. The people want reunification. We're going in there to achieve the desires of the people of Taiwan. They can use that in their propaganda, but there is no basis for it. It would be an invasion. Yep.
1: And it's funny, isn't it, Hugh? Because there, there once was. You know, It wasn't that long ago that it was a sort of close-run thing there for a while in Taiwan about whether the majority of the population was about to tip over in favour of re- reunification. But as you absolutely correctly point out, the actions of China more recently, both rhetorically as well as in Hong Kong and elsewhere, has completely shrunk that part of the Taiwanese population down. I always assumed you know, when studying this as an undergrad, frankly, that the likely scenario was that it would be through soft power that China would eventually get its hands on Taiwan. But, but the, 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 the cuddly China, to the extent there ever was one, has long since receded into the background. And the Taiwanese population looks at what they see on the mainland and says, no way, we don't want to be part of that.
0: The wolves killed off the cuddly bears, I'm afraid. Mm. Well, let's hope we never get to see that in our lifetime. But uh, I wouldn't want to bet uh, a stack of houses against it. PVO, on that cheerful note, <laughs> stay well. We might have one more before the end of the year. What do you think? But, you know, wrap up the parliamentary year.
1: I think that's a good idea.
0: And if you've listened to us through the podcast, even through 110 episodes of it, thanks so much for your loyalty and stickability. And we'll see you again next week. All the best. See you. You have been listening to a 10 News First podcast for 10 Speaks.